This is a passage in a very famous chapter of Romans full of very famous verses. The kind of verses you see cross-stitch and hung on walls, silkscreen on t-shirts or, or Bible covers. Remember Bible covers in the 90s? Bring back Bible covers. But it starts, chapter 8, with a famous verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and they keep on coming. It's just hit after hit after hit. It's like an album that has no songs that you skip this chapter. And people will often memorize these verses, and we will repeat them, we'll repeat them to each other, we'll repeat them to ourselves, but don't forget about the three rules of Bible study. Yes, memorize verses, but know what they mean and know their context. The three rules of Bible study, if you don't remember, are? That's right, know the context of the verse. And when we come into some of these famous verses, the context is demanded by even the way the verse starts. For example, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are, we are more than conquerors. It's such a powerful statement. But if you just pull that verse out of thin air with no context, and it starts with no, I'm left thinking, no, no what? Are you answering a question I didn't ask? What? Well, there is a context, and it makes it all the more powerful. Or, for example, our passage today, beginning in verse 31, starts with a question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I've often seen that verse also pulled out. And I go, what shall we say to what things? What is it that is in view here? Well, probably Paul has in view the entirety from chapter 5 onward as he describes the covenant blessings that we enjoy as the people of God. But most immediately, these things can be summed up in another famous verse that was just in the mix here. 8.28. Anybody have Romans 8.28 memorized? It's a very famous one. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What then shall we say about, about these things? You know, it just reminds me about how often I kind of demand to be let in on God's plans. I want to look at the plans. There's plans somewhere, and something happens in my life or someone else's life that to me doesn't make sense. And I say, I'd really like to have a look at what God is doing. I want to know what is God up to here, because it doesn't make sense to me. I want to look at them. It reminds me a bit of how my wife and I will sometimes be talking, just sitting, just us, chatting about something odd or mundane. For example, not that long ago, we were talking about that brief minute where people had bread makers, and then, you, you know, it would like mix up the bread, and like, remember this? And, and then in the morning, you'd open it up, and you'd pull out a loaf of bread that was so dense, you could barely cut it, and you're like, ah, we made bread. And it smelled really good, but it, it kind of tasted like concrete. And we were talking about it. We are talking about, do they, do they even make those anymore? Are those a thing anymore? And then the very next morning, I turn on my phone, and I've got ads for bread makers. And I thought, I want to see the algorithm. I want to see the code. I want to see the, the software, Facebook or Google or whoever's throwing me this stuff. But here's the thing. If you handed me a printout of Facebook's computer code, Okay, you say, here you go, 62 million lines of code. Or for Google services, 2 billion lines of code. Even if I had the time and attention span to sit there and read all of it, it would mean nothing to me. 
Nothing at all. It, would not, it wouldn't be Greek to me. If it was Koine Greek, I, I'd have a shot. I could read it. This would be well beyond that. It would be Chinese to me. I used to program on my computer. I had QBasic. You know, you'd write print, hello there, run. And it'd be like, hello there. I'd be like, I'm a hacker. But I don't know what the world's going on if I look at Facebook's millions and millions of lines of code and, and think about this. Compared to God's counsel, these two billion lines of computer code are just baby town frolics. They're nothing. They're beyond simplicity. If God somehow showed you or me his plan, okay, here you go, we would have no idea what to make it. We couldn't comprehend it. It might just break our brain to try if we even got a look at it. And yet, here in Romans 8, as in other places, St. Paul speaks in terms we do understand to tell us aspects of God's plan. They're rooted in creation. He talks of height and depth, width and breadth. These, these are three dimensions. We get that, right? Three dimensions, three-dimensional. Then he adds things present and things to come. The fourth dimension, time. And we say, okay, yeah, I'm tracking with you just fine. But that doesn't even scratch the surface of God's view of things. He operates in dimensions we have no category for and couldn't begin to understand. When I demand, oh God, show me what you're up to, show me your plan, that would be anything but a blessing to me and possibly would be just more confusion, more suffering, more struggling, and more sense that I should rely on myself, my own understanding, lean on my understanding rather than trusting in the Lord. And yet, there in verse 28... We read that all the unfathomable intricacies of God's governing his creation, all the cosmos can be boiled down to he works things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's where this text starts. Whoa, this is a good chapter. What shall we say then about these things? Well, Paul has some things to say about these things. And this chapter, especially this, this passage we're looking at today, verses 31 through 39, vintage Paul, where he asks himself questions, tees them up, and then he answers them. And then he tees up another one, and then he answers it. It's a very good way to look like a genius, by the way, when you're talking to people. But Paul does it rhetorically just to give us a, a, a way through the chapter as he leads us from one blessed truth to another. And so it begins, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, question number one, who can be against us? Hey, another very famous verse in Romans 8. I suggest better translated, since God is for us, who can be against us? And I'm not alone there. That's, that's more or less the, the thrust of this verse and certainly uh, a, a viable translation of the Greek. Since God is for us, who can be against us? And there is just kind of assumed there an amazing truth. God is then for us. God is for you. God is for me. Now the Old Testament brings us here. It starts with God is with us. Right? It starts with God is with us. That, that beautiful Christmas passage that Brett read for us earlier. The, the context of that in Isaiah is, is that the, the Syrian army is pressing in on the nation of Judah. 
God's people, where Jerusalem is the, the capital. And then their own brothers from the north, the northern tribes of Israel, are pressing in on another side. And they are feeling like we might fall at any moment. Times are bad. And God comes to the prophet and says, a woman will conceive and give birth. And you will name this child Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you think about the significance of, of naming children as they're born significant things. Remember naming the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed at a low point of Israel. God's left. He's nowhere to be seen. His glory for Israel, we've thrown it away. The opposite here. God is with us. Obviously, that's meant as a blessing, but knowing what we know about God and his holiness and his goodness, and his purity, and how he cannot have sin in his presence, God with us could be bad news, right? God, we can imagine that. Everything you've done in the last week, everything you've thought, everything you've said, God was with you. Yikes. That could be bad news, but it's not. We read here that God is for us. Huper humon, which you could translate, is on our behalf. God on behalf of us. I remember in seminary, I, I took uh, an advanced uh, seminar in Karl Barth, and we read Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, and then we were reading volume four, and Karl Barth wrote in German, and then someone translated it so it's even like uglier and harder to follow than the German language, and there's this much text, and then there's this much footnote in like one-point font. And you're trying to read all this stuff. And I remember one day we had to read 120 pages. I'm like, that's no big deal. And then I started reading and said, oh my goodness. Getting out the jolt cola. It's going to be a long night. I get to the end of all this stuff. He, you know, I'm looking up, all right, what's this Latin mean that he's referencing? I'm doing all this. And finally he gets to the end. And his conclusion is, God with us in Christ is God for us. And I'm like, I could have told you that in two seconds. Why did I have to read for four hours? This is the whole gospel. God with us is God for us. And that's not even new in the New Testament. You know that shepherd's psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he maketh me to lie down. Remember what it says in, in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You are, so God is with us. And then the very next line, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is not just with us. He is for us. And so this question that he poses here, the psalmist poses in Psalm 56, 11, In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then as evidence of that, he begins to remind us of what God did, the depths he went to, to show us his love and make sure we never forgot and make sure that we could not be lost, that God delivered over his son to suffer and die. He handed him over to death on our behalf, on behalf of us. God is for us. He gave Jesus for us. And in verse 32, he says, did not he who did not withhold his son or did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is actually a callback again to the Old Testament. 
Genesis chapter 22, you remember this story, where God appeared to Abraham. After Abraham had wanted a son and been promised a son and kept on not having a son, and finally, when his wife's 100, he gets a son. And God says to him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering at one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. And so he goes and brings the child there and he's about to do it. And you remember the story, there's a ram caught in a thicket, a beautiful prefiguring of Christ, the spotless lamb of God who will come and take our place. And after he says, don't touch the boy, take him off the altar, instead offer this ram that I have provided, a beautiful picture of the gospel. In verse 12, God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing as you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You have not withheld in the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is the Bible Jesus and the apostles are often quoting in the New Testament, that's the same Greek word as we see here. You have not withheld your son from me, Abraham. And Paul says, since he has not withheld his only son, but instead delivered him over for us, how could we doubt for a moment that he loves us? Abraham surrendering his own son is how God knew Abraham loved him. That's what he says. And God surrendering his own son is how we can know he loves us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Don't miss, that's the most important word in that. He gave, he delivered over, he handed over, he did not withhold from us. And that, I mean, as much as you have to assume that Abraham loved Isaac, it doesn't even begin to shine a tiniest little candle on how much God the Father loves the Son. We cannot fathom the love within the blessed Trinity. Twice in the Gospels, the Father himself, even though he has his exact representation, Christ on the scene, the Father himself chimes in, or rather booms in, a voice from heaven. And both times, he says, this is my son, whom I love. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. But he always leads with, whom I love. I love him. This is my beloved son. And he sends him to suffer and die for us. And now, if we are in Christ, God's divine love comes pouring down on us, not for our sake, but for his sake, because we're in Christ, the recipient of that love. And then he shows us how, because we're in Christ, nothing can break the bond of love between us and him. And then something happens in our lives, and we say to ourselves, well, God must really hate me to let me go through this. Instead of saying, God must really love me because he handed over his son, his only son, whom he loves, to death for my salvation. And if I am suffering, I'm walking in the footsteps of Christ, whom God loves more than I could ever fathom. In verse 33, then, another question comes, but there's kind of a change of setting. We're sort of whisked up into the courtroom of God. Because all the language suddenly becomes very judicial. And that's not uncommon for salvation talk. We read, who shall bring any charges against God's elect? And then the third question that comes is, who can condemn? 
That's kind of two steps in the same direction, bringing charges and then condemning. And with all these questions, the idea of successfully is implied. Okay, I mean, yes, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, anyone can be against us, but not successfully. Anyone can bring charges, and many can and will speak words of condemnation against believers, but they won't succeed. The world, the flesh, and the devil will try to condemn you. The world will look at you, and because it hated Jesus, will hate you, and will say, oh, that stuff you say is love is really hate, and that stuff you say is good is really evil, and will try their darndest to condemn you. The devil will try to condemn you by reminding you of all the sins and all the failures of your past again and again and again, and your flesh will as well. And that's where it gets really dicey, because God has given you a conscience and indwelled you with the Holy Spirit so that you do have a sense of being convicted of sin, but the flesh can be leveraged to make you feel like your sins, which are under the blood of Jesus, still drag you down. All of these things together strive to condemn us. But in order to successfully condemn, in the legal sense, one must have authority to declare a person guilty and authority to sentence them to some sort of punishment. And that cannot happen for us. How did this chapter begin? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I love what he does next is he doesn't bring the next question just yet. He actually nails down all four corners of the coffin of the shame and condemnation and accusation that might come our way. He walks us through these four corners of what determines our freedom and our innocence in God's eyes. First, Christ died and took the full penalty for your sin. Second, he was raised, which is the Father's stamp of approval. I accept that payment. Third, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Fourth, he now sits there in triumph and intercedes for you and for me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, if Kim was here, someone would have just said amen right now. Amen. There we go. The last question, number four. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then there's a follow-up. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, shall any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? This list here is not theoretical to Paul. He's not saying, let me think of different things that might separate someone. No, it's autobiographical. Go through his adventures in the book of Acts and then go through this list. And it's just his life. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. The only one he has not yet experienced is the last one, sword, which means a violent death, and he is going to. And he probably knows that he is going to. And we see in that list and how it progresses that, that we as followers of Jesus should expect to endure not just the hardships common to all people and beware of any preacher or author or anyone who tells you if you follow Jesus, you can avoid all the troubles that are common to all people. But we're even promised extra suffering because we follow Jesus. He quotes Psalm 44 here. We are, we are regarded as sheep led to the slaughter all day long. God did not withhold his only son, 
but delivered him over for our salvation. And so if we look at our suffering and we hear, well, obviously God's not happy with you or you wouldn't be struggling with that, or we're, we're, we're battling a sin and we're not having perfect victory and we hear the enemy come in our ear and say, well, obviously you're not really one of his followers, otherwise you wouldn't be failing left and right. We have to remember a simple truth. To accuse or attempt to condemn us implies that this remedy was not quite enough. That handing over the spotless lamb, the son of God, through whom everything was made, was not quite enough to buy our salvation. What filthy blasphemy, and also, what a dumb, dumb idea. What more could God have given? What more could anyone have ever done? It is him who justifies, Paul writes. That means he declares us righteous. Who then could declare you guilty? Wicked. Condemned. I mean, the enemy can try. The world can try. You can try to declare guilty the one whom God has declared righteous, but you'll have about as much luck as if you jump out of a window on the Boji Tower and declare that gravity will pull you up instead of pulling you down. God's word overrides yours. That's what justify means. He declared us righteous. It's the opposite of pointing out guilt. It's pointing to Christ's righteousness, his death and resurrection, and what he did to do away with our guilt. And that last question is the one St. Paul is answering then when he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. And those are the things. What shall separate us from the love of God? Persecution, trouble, suffering, sword, famine? No, they will not. In all these things... We are more than conquerors. Not even the sword can separate us from the love of God because in all these things, he has spoken for us. That verb, are more than conquerors, which doesn't look like a verb in your English translation. It looks like a noun. This is what you are. It's actually a verb in the Greek. It's an interesting verb. There's, there's the word nikos, which means victory or triumph. It's where the word Nike comes from, by the way. Nikao is the verb, and it's a very common verb in the book of Revelation. It means to overcome. And you'll read again and again in the book of Revelation about he who overcomes, or overcomes to the end. But this is a word built off of that word. Hupernikao. Or if we wanted to write it in English letters, hypernikao. Hyper triumph. We hyper triumph in all these things. Perhaps a better translation would be, in, in all these things, we win a most glorious victory. That's what one lexicon defines hypernikao as, to win a most glorious victory. In all these things, suffering, famine, nakedness, even death, we win a glorious victory? How? That's the, that's the final question. Paul doesn't ask it, but he has answered it. Is it... Just denial? All this bad stuff happens to us, and together we say, don't worry, we're winning at this. I have to confess, this reminds me of about 10 years ago when one Charles Sheen had sort of a public breakdown. You remember this? Charlie Sheen's life unraveled very publicly. It was very sad, and yet the world was very entertained by it. But at the same time, he was fired from his wildly popular television show, 
He went from being the, the highest paid actor on television to kind of a punchline, this idea of a loser. He lost custody of his kids. Apparently, he could barely stand up without leaning on something because he was always so very high on one drug or another. And the part that amused everyone is that even while his whole life was falling apart and he was losing everything, his catchphrase was, does anyone remember? Winning! I'm winning! And the amusing thing, which was sadly amusing, was that someone could convince themselves in a moment like that that they were winning anything. And of course, later on, he looked back and said, no, that was mental illness and and desperation talking. I I wasn't winning anything, and, and I know that now. But the world, I think, often looks at the church and sees similar denial. Losing, 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 but saying, ah, we're winning. We're not just conquering, we're hyper-conquering. We're more than conquerors. The scripture does tell us we are in the process of winning, even if, or perhaps especially if, we are losing everything in this life. But it's because, as the apostle just laid out, Christ died for our sins, rose for our justification, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and now sits triumphantly making intercession for us. There is reality behind the claim. We wouldn't understand all the code of the whole plan if it was showed to us, but that much we can know. God with us is God for us. And in him, we win. Just as Christ triumphed by his death on the cross, he can turn our own suffering, even our own deaths, into victory. And he says that as he hammers this home in the last two verses of the text. Verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am certain that none of these things can separate us. And he goes from category to category here. He wants to make sure you you can't find something that he missed that maybe could separate us. He starts with the height and depth. This, by the way, is not geometry. It's astronomy. These were common terms for the high and low point in a star's path. Anything in the cosmos he's talking about, from the very top to the very bottom, all of creation. Present things, things to come. The present things are the things that you are struggling with now. They cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Things to come, those are the things you're worried about happening tomorrow. They can't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I was reading an article in Christianity Today just this past week about how they came out with uh, some of these reports from the Bible apps that people have. It's interesting now, so many people read the Bible on their phones or on their computer or their tablet that they can actually keep track of what are the most popular verses in a given moment. And during 2020, wow, something bad was going on. And the most popular verse, the most read verse, the most bookmarked verse on the YouVersion Bible app, which is one of the biggest ones, and they, by the way, had an 80% increase of people reading the Bible during 2020, 600 million people worldwide, was Isaiah 41.10. It's the verse that says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You might talk about the state of the church in the world today, in the West today, in America today. 
The fact that people knew that in a time of hopelessness, what they needed to cling on to was that God would hold them up with his strong right hand actually gives me quite a bit of hope. Most people determine their view of God based on their present circumstances. God, oh, God loves me. Look what's going on. Things are going good. Oh, God's angry with me. Things are going bad. Here the apostle shows us that a believer does the opposite. We determine our view of our present circumstances based on our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. Calvin put it much more eloquently in his commentary on Romans. The knowledge and lively sense of the love which he testifies to us is so vigorous in our hearts that it always shines in the darkness of afflictions. For as clouds, though they obscure the clear brightness of the sun, do not yet wholly deprive us of its light, so God in adversities sends forth through the darkness the rays of his favor, lest temptation should overwhelm us with despair. Nay, our faith, supported by God's promise as by wings, makes its way upward to heaven through all the intervening obstacles." The very heart of the gospel is this. God loves you, exclamation point. That's not the whole gospel, that's the heart of it. The whole gospel, you can just break it out from there. John 3, 16, for God so loved you, meaning in this way, not so much, but God loved you in this way. He sent his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation by grace through faith. But at the heart of it is God loves you, exclamation point. God loves you, but the enemy will try to leverage your trials or your circumstances or your, your fleeting doubts into a question mark. God loves me? Really? To begin to doubt. Anything can do this. Little things are huge things. A divorce, an illness or death, a difficult relationship that's getting more difficult. And yet, this is the rock-solid foundation under our feet. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Why is that? Show me the plan. I want to know why these things are happening. You wouldn't understand the plan any more than I would understand the code behind how Google works. But you can know this much. God with you is God for you. And when we ask why is this happening, the answer is probably along those same lines. We wouldn't know. We wouldn't get it if he showed us. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Reading that passage and then height or depth and seeing the astronomical implications had me thinking this week about that the new telescope and all those amazing pictures we're seeing from the, the far reaches of the universe. And it reminds me that our God is so much bigger than we could ever fathom. None of that stuff is new to him. He made all of it. He knows all of it. It's as familiar to him as, as this parking lot and the sanctuary and that courtyard is to me. There's an old prayer of the Puritans, my father, I trust thee even when I can't understand thee. And they would say, when in dark places, pray that prayer. And I would suggest that is a good idea and also meditate on this text. Know that God uses trials to refine us like gold. Know that your present suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory which is to come. 
and know that he is working all things for good, even the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sam Storms, an author that I uh, greatly admire and, and love to read, wrote about this astronomical implication of God's love when he was writing once about Psalm 103. Verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And he said, listen, David was not an astronomer. He didn't have the first clue of how high the heavens are above the earth. He had no idea. We have a better idea. And one way to even begin to think about the height and depth involved here in this comparison is to think of a light year. Light year, by the way, uh, not only the surname of Buzz Lightyear, but also a unit, not of time, but of distance. A light year is how far light travels in one of our years. Now, light actually moves 186,000 miles a second. That's very far. 60 of those gets you a light minute. 60 of those gets you a light hour. 24 of those gets you a light day. 365 of those gets you a light year. You see how these things balloon? A light year is 6 trillion miles. That's to the moon and back 12 million times. Now, try to get your mind around this. The Hubble telescope gave us breathtaking pictures of a galaxy 13 billion light years from Earth. That would put this galaxy 78 sextillion miles away. 78 and then 21 zeros after it. And the James Webb Space Telescope is showing us objects that are far fainter than even the Hubble could show us. It's going to be incredible uh, to see all of these images and, and give praise and thanks to God. We can see further and clearer, but we still can't see to the end of God's love for us. God's love is greater than all of that. And then here in this passage, we read that nothing in all that space and all that mystery and all that power could even get close to separating us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In these last two verses, I don't think there could be any other two sentences that could possibly show us how securely we are held in the hands of God. There's no way we could be more secure than we are now in the loving hands of this mighty God. And when you feel like you are being accused or when you sense that, I don't know, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe something can separate me. Maybe it's something I did. Maybe it's something I failed to do. Imagine this. You are standing before the bar of God's judgment in the heavenly courtroom. Satan, whose very name means accuser, is there to accuse. That's boring, but there he is. To attempt to steal your security, to drive a wedge between you and your creator. And he goes on at length about your sins, listing each one, describing it in great detail, talking about how it wasn't the first time, it wasn't the second, it wasn't the tenth. He describes your failures, your fallenness, your foolishness. He points out your afflictions and how you lose hope and lose sight of God when things get even a little bit tough. Finally, he makes a long, impassioned, eloquent closing statement about how unworthy you are of God's love, which, by the way, you are, and so am I. Then he sits down. Your advocate, Jesus, stands up, holds out his hands to show the scars from the nails, pulls back his garment to show the hole in his side, and then without a word, sits back down, resting his case. 
And immediately the verdict is announced. There is no condemnation for you. You are spoken for in Christ Jesus. God with you is God for you. Now recognize this. Such a scene cannot even take place. Because Satan is not permitted to stand before God and accuse you. We read in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The accuser of the brothers, Revelation 12, 10, has been cast down, who accuses them day and night before God. Not anymore. He's been cast down. Still shows up for work, but now it's a charade. And when you hear that, that voice, that closing statement about exhibit A and exhibit B, and oh, look at this, and look at all of this, and, and certainly something can separate you from the love of God, recognize it's not even a real courtroom proceeding. It's play acting by the enemy. It's faker than Judge Judy or one of those stupid shows on TV or like, or, or like even faker. There's some stakes there, I think. It's like when you're so sick and, and you're lying in bed with the flu and you're watching TV and Matlock comes on and you're like, eh. And you watch it for a while and you get a little wrapped up in the plot. And then you realize that that one guy is the guy from Die Hard and you're kind of locked in. But at the end, you go, oh, wait, that was fake. That wasn't real. It was just for the benefit of viewers at home. This is all is going on when you hear the accuser try to separate you from the love of God. It's a fake. It's a sham. It's no more legitimate a trial than the one that condemned Jesus for blasphemy. When you see this spiritual theater or sense it in your soul trying to deceive you, when you hear that voice, open up Romans chapter 8 and read the whole thing beginning to end so you get the context. See all those judicial terms and imagery that we find there. That's real. That's your situation. Nothing can separate you before God. That's your standing before him. So what shall we say about these things? Who can stand against you if God is for you and God is with you? Who can accuse or condemn? What can separate you from the love of God? Can anything in all creation? No. In these things... We are hyper-conquerors. We enjoy a stunning victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage that gives us hope when the world would try to seep it away and suck it away, when the enemy would come and try and separate us from a sense of your love. We pray that your word would take away any sense of progress he might make in our hearts. Draw us back to you. That, Lord, when our own flesh might even accuse and condemn us, we pray that we would, all the harsher, condemn it for its lies. Just as Paul said that if, if even an angel from heaven should speak a different gospel than what he brought, let it be eternally damned. Lord, let the lying accusations and blasphemous words from our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil be eternally condemned. Because we know we cannot be. We will not be. There is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, Lord, if someone here today needs to hear this badly, I pray you would draw them back to yourself. I pray you'd, you'd bring them up to the front of this sanctuary where I could lay hands on them and pray for them and remind them that God is with them and God is for them and nothing, nothing, nothing can ever separate them from the love of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen.